Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Afney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. We're always delighted to be able to tap the intelligence of our first guest. His name is Colonel Grant Newsom, United States Marine Corps retired. In addition to serving his country in the uniform of a Marine, he has also been a Foreign Service officer. He's also been a very successful entrepreneur and businessman in East Asia. He is, among other things, I'm proud to say, a senior fellow of the Center for Security Policy, as well as a research fellow at the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies. Always a welcome guest. Colonel, good to have you back in the house virtually. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let me ask you, um, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. Uh, You have written an important piece at Asia Times. It's also available at uh, securefreedom.org, entitled Defending Taiwan. Think globally and look up. Uh, This strikes me as kind of uh, adapting an adage from Dwight D. Eisenhower, who said some problems are so big, the only way to solve them is to make them bigger. Talk a little bit about your theory of what the United States and its allies could do to uh, deter and, if necessary, defeat a Chinese attack on the island of Taiwan. Sure. Well, what I wrote about is the, the fact that when people discuss defending Taiwan, fighting for Taiwan, they focus on a very narrow geographical area, and that is Taiwan itself, the Taiwan Strait, and the immediate immediate area right around it. So they're just looking at a fight in a very short, a very small area. And China has the advantage. And it's been reported that in many recent war games, America has lost and lost badly in that scenario. So what I suggest is look at the entire globe And America should, in the event of a Taiwan contingency, if China attacks or is just too aggressive towards Taiwan, America cuts off China's supply lines because China depends on overseas assets for food, oil, uh, investment, etc., And that's if you target those, China has got a huge problem. And that is a much more effective approach that improves America's odds rather than just trying to figure out some way to amass enough military might to defeat China just around Taiwan. Because that's very hard because it's so close to China. It would be like defending Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard from a Chinese attack. Well, that's pretty easy because it's so close to the United States. So you can see our problem out there. But if you make the fight worldwide, then China has got some real problems. As I said, they absolutely depend on overseas uh, assets and markets for natural resources, particularly food, oil, energy. Uh, And then you also throw in financial sanctions on China, trade sanctions uh, that prohibit Americans from investing in China or providing money to China. And things get very, very difficult for the Chinese communists very quickly. But it does require a global view of things. And that was my principal point. You know the Chinese well and their military doctrine. Is it likely that the Chinese are thinking globally as well, Colonel Newsom? You sort of allude to this possibility in the closing paragraphs of your piece, but given what the Chinese are doing to build out their Belt and Road Initiative, for example, um, with not just assets, but um, bases now, it seems, increasingly around the world. And um, one of the other things that a colleague of ours at the Committee on the Present Danger of China, of which you are a very valued member, of course, um, Rick Fisher has observed in recent days in terms of uh, the Chinese adapting a particularly dangerous 
Russian uh, system. Uh, they Russians call it the Club K. Um, containerized missiles that could be concealed and deployed widely around the world, including on China's immense commercial shipping fleets. What are the prospects that, in fact, the Chinese anticipate uh, that we might take this thing global and be prepared to deal with that contingency decisively as well as the one immediate to Taiwan. Well, the, yes, the Chinese have been thinking about that for at least 20 years, probably longer. And they've started with commercial presences in uh, just about everywhere, in Latin America, Africa, the Caribbean, uh, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, you name, name it, and Europe as well. And they have got these commercial uh, inroads, often owning ports, sometimes airfields, and obviously ports and airfields can be used for military purposes just as well. Uh, so they have looked at the entire map from the very beginning, and the idea is to get in there, establish themselves, get political influence, and eventually the military presence can follow. And you can see that if that happens, China has effectively done to the Americans what the Americans have done to China, because uh, America has this global military presence. And China wants the same thing to counter us. And that specific weapon system, the sort of missile in a container, uh, is a, it's a good one if uh, you can do it. It's not that complicated. The Americans have known about this capability for a long time. Uh, they don't seem to have uh, applied much uh, effort to it. But the Chinese do seem to have given this some thought. So think about it. You have Chinese merchant ships all over the globe. You have them in U.S. ports. You have them near uh, U.S. Navy bases. And when the time comes, suddenly anti-ship missiles start launching from these containers, and there's so many of them, literally millions of them. You don't know where they are. The anti-ship missiles come out, and if China does make its move, then it leaves a lot of the U.S. Navy uh, smoking ruin, and that's in ports where the Americans thought they were safe. Uh, so that's uh, potentially, it's very serious. And once again, we've known this problem. We've done nothing about it, or not very much. So it, it is a global uh, issue. And the Chinese, as, as you've noted, they have seen the, the globe as a battlefield from the very beginning, and they've insinuated themselves nicely. Unfortunately, I think it's the case that those Club K systems are capable of launching cruise missiles as well as anti-ship vessel uh, missiles that would be, unfortunately, potentially able to target, maybe even with nuclear warheads, um, other targets as well. Here at home, as you say, Colonel Newsom. Um, let me turn to one of the places that has become a contested battle space, if you will, in the non-kinetic sense at the moment. Um, you've been covering it, given particularly your forward deployed focus on uh, the Pacific. Talk about what's been going on in the Solomon Islands lately and what the stakes are there in terms of uh, a contest between the United States and... Mm -hmm. Well, put simply, in 2019, the Solomon Islands government switched recognition from Taiwan to the PRC. The PRC paid a lot of money to have that happen, a lot of bribery, etc. Uh, many people in the Solomons are ha unhappy, so they protested about this a few weeks ago outside the parliament in the capital city. The government responded with tear gas and police, and there was some rioting and parts of Chinatown were burned down. The government 
say this very pro-China in the bag uh, for China government called the Australians for help. The Australians sent uh, soldiers, police, and some diplomats over. They brought the New Guineans with them. The New Zealanders have now gotten into it. Uh, Fiji as well. Uh, and what this did is it gave the government breathing space to redeploy its sort of coercive tools to hire thugs to go after the opposition, uh, and also to be able to tell the opposition, uh, opposition and the wavering politicians who were about to remove the prime minister and re uh, that uh, sort of show them well. Uh, look, we have the um, the Australians on our side, uh, New Zealand, you know, China as well. Uh, and look at that. So that has demoralized the opposition, which had a very good chance of, uh, say, getting rid of this very corrupt, thuggish, pro-China prime minister. So here you have Australia, which is in an immense uh, fight with the Chinese, is doing the bidding of Beijing. Uh, they've gotten themselves into a very difficult position. America has no embassy in the Solomon Islands. And as a result, we have very little in, uh, ability to influence things, even though the pro-West, the pro-freedom locals desperately wanted our help. And that's where we stand. And the Solomons, why do they matter? Well, that's where Guadalcanal was, where the famous World War II battle was. From the Solomons, you can isolate Australia from much of Asia. You can cut the Australian supply lines and communications links to the United States. And also you can influence outwards. If China gets inroads uh, into the Solomons, they can uh, knock off the rest of the Pacific Islands one at a time. Just using political influence will be enough for now. Well, it certainly sounds as though they have made inroads into the Solomon Islands. Is there anything that the United States could do now, Colonel, that might make a difference, or is it too late? Well, it's never too late, you know, but you, if you're not there, you're not interested. You know, America doesn't have an embassy. They outsource their foreign policy and their interests to the Australians. And as good an allies as the Australians are, they're not us. Uh, the locals there, many of the, them that wanted us to be there. So that's a start, is you know, show that you actually give two hoots and show up and start getting into the mix. Uh, and if you're not going to do that, well, you shouldn't complain when things don't go your way. And that's how, where they're going right now. But being there is the first thing. Uh, and get that embassy up and running uh, immediately. And I say that if you don't do that, well, it's hard to see what else is going to work. Well, you've spent time in the Foreign Service of the United States. I, I wonder whether that, even if it were to happen, whether it's sufficient, whether it's, uh, I mean, obviously a necessary condition to have a presence there, but uh, should we be actually bringing military contingents in as well to try to level the playing field a bit? Well, we the point of a military presence, you know, it has to be done carefully. In fact, a few years ago, there were Solomon Islanders who were begging America to please set up a base here. Uh, and you do have, you can get in a military presence, uh, even if you're not clever enough or have enough backbone to actually try to set up a base. But the, the U.S. military is pretty much absent from these parts of the, uh, the globe, of the Pacific. They show up now and then and do an exercise, but they don't have a permanent presence. Call it what you want. And that is something that the military does need to start paying attention to. And Indo-PACOM has been remiss in, as I say, in not establishing themselves throughout the region, except in a very few limited places. They've been active around the edges of the Pacific, but not so much in the middle. Uh, and what they do is it is the equivalent, really, of the Harlem Globetrotters showing up and putting on an exhibition and then going home until the next year. That's not the same thing as a permanent presence. So you're right. It is a diplomatic effort, military effort as well. And 
you, if you're smart enough to do it, you can actually get an economic effort uh, in here. Uh, but you've got to be in there providing moral support and working with uh, your supporters in these these countries. Say it gives them a moral support that I say bolsters their efforts because they are taking on a thuggish regime that has, as I said, has hired thugs, hired these militias to go after uh, their opposition. They have detained opposition leaders, and here America is doing next to nothing. It appears, and poor Australia is well. You can see which side they're propping up, and it's getting more and more clear, obviously, that the Chinese are a dominant force there, and will be, I'm sure. Um, making further inroads in some of the neighboring uh, island nations as well. And uh, it's just, you say, this is a very, very strategic part of the world. We cede it to the Chinese at, uh, I think, our peril, as that, well as that of freedom-loving people in that region too. Yeah, and, and I would note that the, the Chinese are, in fact, in every Pacific island. Uh, and so th that's how far behind we are. Mm -hmm. And that's not just, as you were saying earlier, Colonel Newsom, in the form of these shipping, uh, you know, operations. It's uh, a more visible, sustained presence and, and influence operation as well, is it not? Including this Belt and Road Initiative business uh, that's of great concern. That's right. It's the, the Chinese, uh, the first sort of step in is commercial presence. And that commercial presence is logging, mining, fishing, and down to the corner shops where overseas Chinese take over, dominate the, the local, local commerce. Uh, this obviously isn't very popular with the locals, but this is a pretty much a full court press that Chinese commercial interests do that builds local political influence and Chinese diplomats and sort of government interests are uh, in on it as well. Uh, the military is less so now, but say that will come. Um, Colonel, there's so many other things I want to talk to you about. Two, just very quickly, if we could touch on. One is um, there is a degree of pushback now, I'm happy to say, in the United States Congress to the idea that we ought to simply declare an end to the Korean War um, unconditionally. And uh, the bill that would promote that idea, H.R. 3446, the so-called Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, um, is now facing some significant opposition um, led by a woman by the name of um, Representative Young Kim. Um, tell us about why it's important that that legislation not be improved. Well, the bill is alluring on the surface because everybody wants peace. But when you look at it, what it really calls on the Americans to do is to sign a hurried, rushed peace treaty with North Korea. The idea is that, well, if you sign a treaty, that will get uh, peace. And if you show that you're willing to sign a treaty, that will make Kim Jong-un, the dictator in North Korea, will make him nice. And we've seen all this before. We've tried everything over the last 30 years. And this is like signing a rushed peace treaty with the Taliban or with the Viet North Vietnamese in 1973. Uh, it's a gift to Kim Jong-un. And it's this really uh, naive and sometimes it's malevolent, uh, peace at all costs, give peace a chance sort of thinking. And there are, fortunately, there are uh, Congress people who've 
understand this and are doing their best to uh, prevent this from happening. You can have peace on the peninsula anytime you want. Kim Jong-un just has to want it. Uh, He doesn't show any signs uh, of it. And a group I'm with, One Korea Network, has been uh, active in educating Congress about the the risk to this and educating others. Uh, So there's some pretty good prospects for stopping uh, this bill and replacing it with a better one. Well, I've I've been helping that project a little bit myself and I'm pleased that uh, you are playing a leading role in it, and hopefully it is helping to uh, change minds about the advisability of essentially creating conditions that will inevitably, it seems to me, lead to the removal of U.S. forces from the Korean Peninsula and quite possibly set the stage for another invasion of the South by uh, North Koreans. Uh, that mustn't be allowed to happen, needless to say. Finally, just a quick thought, if you would, Colonel. Um, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Lord Lloyd Austin has been making noises uh, lately, uh, rather bemused uh, noises, one might say, about why it is the American people don't seem to hold in quite as high regard um, or trust, have confidence in the United States military at the moment. You've served with distinction in the uniform of the United States Marines. Uh, This must um, make your stomach churn. Um, What's going on there, sir? And what are its implications? Well, the American public has noticed that America's top military leadership over the last 20 years has failed to produce victory in the last two major campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. 20 years, they've had uh, unlimited resources, money, manpower, excellent troops, and they've, they've lost in both cases. So not surprisingly, people are sort of skeptical about just how competent military leadership is. And this manifests itself in a a, a view of the entire military. Additionally, the social engineering, this sort of, uh, this woke sort of uh, witch hunt uh, within the the military to get rid of so-called extremists, white supremacists, uh, really something that doesn't exist, uh, is destroying the military from the inside. And the people who send their sons and daughters to join the military see this and they don't like it. You know, so what was once the most respected institution in the United States is no longer. And it's it isn't leprechauns that did it. It's guys like the current Secretary of Defense and his predecessors. There's no other uh, place to put the blame. Colonel Newsom, thank you for your clarity on all of these points, your leadership, which continues now at the Center for Security Policy, among other places. We appreciate you very much and look forward to a further visit with you in the near future. In the meantime, stay well, my friend. Next up, we'll talk with Peter Husey about um, one of those other Chinese weapon systems we need to be worried about, hypersonic missiles and uh, their nuclear capabilities more generally. That and more, straight ahead.